Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. And we continue our study in this Gospel, and we get to see today just another wonderful miracle that Jesus performed, another great example of the power of Christ. Now, I'm sure you're very much aware that we are right on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying that for for many, many weeks. And Jesus has just finished his manifesto of life in the kingdom of God. And he spoke with such authority that the people were amazed that a person who had no religious training, someone who had never been to their rabbinical schools, someone who had grown up in that little infamous town called Nazareth, someone with such an ignominious beginning could actually speak with such wisdom. And so they were astounded with his authority. He didn't teach as the scribes. Uh, They often relied on others' opinions. They, They didn't really know much about the law themselves. They just repeated what others had said, and so they spoke in the authority of others. But Jesus spoke under his own authority. He never quoted from anyone else, and when he spoke, he spoke with power and with grace. And I suppose that a word that we use today that would describe it would be the word gravitas. You heard that in the news, gravitas, that's become popular in political campaigns. And Jesus was a man who spoke that way. He spoke as Lord because he is Lord. He spoke as the king because he is the king. And the king can always speak in authority in his own kingdom. And when Jesus had finished that great sermon, he came down from the mountain and people were still buzzing about what he said. He spoke against their religious leaders. He gave a different interpretation of the law. So they were asking each other the question, why should we listen to him? Why should we listen to him any longer? Why should we believe what he said? And so we come to this eighth chapter and Jesus demonstrates once again why they should listen. He is a miracle worker, and this 8th and ninth chapters of Matthew contain nine miracles, and these miracles were validation of his otherworldly existence. He is not of this world, but he came into this world to be the Savior of men. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom that one day would become a physical kingdom of God on the earth. Now, our study today is in the second miracle in which we see the faith of a man that amazed Jesus. You know, we often talk about how amazing the works that Jesus did were to us, and probably we don't think that there are some things that could amaze him. And here we have a story that includes the faith of a man that was very uncommon. It was faith that came from someone who was not of the chosen nation of Israel. It was not someone who had been called out by God in the way that they had been. But this was the faith of a Gentile. And it exceeded the faith of any that Jesus had spoken to before. Now, verse number 5 is where we begin today. I'd like you to stand with me, please, again, for the reading of God's Word. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning, or chapter 8, rather, beginning in verse number 5, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, 
Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed that selfsame hour. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. And Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts to what you would have us to see from the scriptures. Uh, Lord, may we have the kind of faith that we'll talk about from this man today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we think about this miracle today, there are certain aspects of it that, that really are worthy of special attention. It's evident by reading all of the gospel accounts and by combining them that Jesus had a very extensive healing ministry. We've already learned that Jesus went throughout all the towns of Galilee, all the villages there and of Galilee, and he healed every type of disease that he encountered. And we also learned that from every region that was around, from the north, from Syria, from the east in the Decapolis, from the south in Judea, there were people that came to him with their sick. They brought those that were, had all these different kinds of illnesses, and Jesus healed all of them. Now, we only have a few of Jesus' miracles that are mentioned in the gospel accounts. If you look in the book of John, you'll find there that he mentioned only eight of Jesus' miracles. And the ones that he chose were standout miracles, and the intent was to show that Jesus truly is the Christ. And that selective choice of miracles shows us that there must be some special significance to the ones that were picked out to, to tell us about Christ. Uh, for instance, in that first miracle that we studied last week in verses 1 through 4, it was the healing of a man who had leprosy. And in all the gospel accounts, we only find that there are two times where the Bible says that Jesus healed lepers, and yet we do know that there were many, many more that Jesus healed. And the point of telling us about leprosy was to show that Jesus had the power to heal from the worst possible diseases. And then the healing from leprosy also speaks to us of how God is able to heal us from the worst, of a, the worst disease that we have, and that is the disease of sin. We all are sinners, and that was a very vivid picture of the awful condition that we're in, and that there is no relief from the disease of sin unless the Holy Spirit should convict our hearts and we come to Christ in repentance and faith. And so we have this next miracle, and this also is a very special one, and it's special because of the person who was involved in the story. This man is a Gentile, not a Jew. The healing is not of the man that asked, but of someone that was asked for. The healing did not take place in the presence of Jesus. And then there's this statement of uncommon faith, that it comes from a man who was not in God's chosen nation, but who was an outcast. And when you add all of those factors up, you have another very special revelation of God's or Christ's kingship and his authority. I want to look into some of these different factors today as we study this great story that we find in Matthew chapter 8. First, I'd like for us to examine the person with the plea. Who was this person? Who was this man who made this plea to Jesus? I've already stated that he was a Gentile, and we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on that particular part because I think that you are aware by now how that the Jews felt about Gentiles. 
When we studied the Sermon on the Mount, we came across these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. He said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now there in verse number 44, that word persecute stands out because the Jewish people had been under persecution for a long, long time. Going all the way back to 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians. On to 586 B.C. when the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. And for that next 400 years, the Jewish people lived under persecution and the oppression under the occupation of foreign powers. And so at the time of Jesus, it was the Romans. And there were Roman soldiers that were scattered among the people in Israel. And they had been put there for the purpose of enforcing the collection of Roman taxes. And so these people, the Jewish people, did not like that foreign occupation. They were not happy having those Roman soldiers live among them. And to have this command from Jesus that they were to love their enemies and treat them just like they did the Jewish people, that was an exceedingly shocking statement for Jesus to make. But this particular man, there was something different about him. He was a Roman soldier, but there were some characteristics that he had that were very different. Now, we notice, first of all, his unusual character. He was a centurion. A, a centurion is the highest-ranking non-commissioned officer in the Roman army. They were in charge of roughly about 100 men. And these were soldiers that were, that were enlisted, and they had risen up through the ranks to achieve uh, the rank that they had of centurion. So these were battle-tested men. These were men of valor. Uh, they had seen much bloodshed and cruelty during their military careers. And when we read the same account that's recorded in Luke chapter 7, we find some details there that Luke gives that Matthew doesn't record. And we learn from Luke that this particular man was one who loved the Jewish nation. He had contributed to the Jewish people. He had built a synagogue for them in Capernaum. Now, some people say that he financed it, maybe used his own money in order to build that synagogue, which is probably a little bit unlikely because... Centurions were not normally very wealthy men. And some say that what he had done, he had taken the soldiers that were under his command that were stationed in Capernaum, and he had used them for the labor to help the Jews build their synagogue. When we were in Israel a couple of years ago, we stood in the ancient city of Capernaum, and there we looked at that synagogue, uh, an old synagogue that was built there. I have a picture for that of that today where you can see the columns of this synagogue. Uh, this is not from the time of Jesus, what you see there, but it's built on the same foundation of that old synagogue that was built in the time of Jesus. Now, the next picture, though, is probably the one that's most pertinent to this discussion because you can see along the base of it a row of stones there, and those stones are the foundation that go all the way back to the time of Jesus. And so it could be possible that it was this particular centurion who had his soldiers go there and to lay these foundation stones in order to build that particular synagogue. Now that help of, uh, of giving, giving that to the Jews to build the synagogue had endured this man to the Jewish people. And because of that, they were willing to go to Jesus and to intercede for him on his behalf. Now, this man desired that Jesus would heal his servant. 
And there's another detail that Luke includes that we don't have here, and that is the centurion himself didn't go directly to Jesus, but rather he asked for help, and he asked the Jewish leaders to go to Jesus first, and for, him, for them to speak to Jesus and ask him to heal the servant. So this man's character was quite unusual in that he didn't have this mutual hatred for the Jews that they had for him. And so he reached out to them. And it's probable that he was a Jewish convert, uh, much like Cornelius that we learn in Acts chapter 10. He was also a centurion. And then there's something else that's very unusual about this man, and that was his unusual care. One of the interesting things about centurions when you see them in the New Testament is how they're always spoken of in a favorable light. And that doesn't mean that all centurions were good men because they weren't. Uh, Some of them were very hateful men. Most of them, I think, probably were. They were hateful. They were cruel. And the contrast of the ones that we find chosen in the New Testament as the example of centurions is what what makes it so unusual. No doubt they were chosen and cast favorably because that shows us that God is able to have mercy upon even the very worst that are among us. So here is a man who is a good centurion, Cornelius, that I mentioned in Acts chapter 10. He was also a good one. At the crucifixion, there was a centurion who said, this man, surely this man was the son of God. Remember, also there was a centurion that protected Paul and helped him when he was about to be taken by the Jewish mob at the temple and be killed. There was a centurion that protected him. There was another one that was assigned to Paul when he made his appeal to Caesar. And so when he was on his way to Rome to to, uh, be judged by Caesar, the ship that Paul was on was shipwrecked. And the centurion that was in charge of Paul, rather than kill him, as they normally would do, fearing that the prisoners would escape, this centurion saved Paul from death. And so you see these centurions over and over again spoken of in a favorable light in the Scripture. And this particular one stands out in just a, in a remarkable way because of the love that he had for a slave. Now, in those days, a slave was nothing more than a piece of chattel. They weren't considered to be anything more than just an object, like a farm implement, like a tool, a plow, or a scythe that a farmer would use. And when it was worn out, when the slave was worn out, when he got old, when he couldn't work anymore, they would just get rid of him. And so if a slave lived, that was of no consequence except for what you could get out of him. And then when he could no longer work and he died, you didn't worry about that because all that you did was just throw him out on the garbage heap and you go get another slave. It's like you buy a new hoe or a new rake or you buy a new kitchen utensil. A slave was nothing, totally of no consequence as a human being. A slave had no rights, so that if you killed a slave, that wasn't murder. If you got mad at him and you beat him half to death, if you kicked him, did all those different kinds of things to him, that made no difference at all because the Romans were totally indifferent towards slaves. They had no worth as human beings. And so to find this man, a centurion, this battle-hardened, crusty man who normally would be a very hateful person, a cruel person, To find a man like that who loved a slave, that was a very unusual thing. So that's the man from whom this plea came, one who would normally be hated by the Jews. And yet this man had the Jews earnestly interceding for Jesus on the behalf of his slave. Now secondly, we would note about him today the features of his faith. 
In verse number 5, it says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Now understand, once again, that the centurion was not at first there, not at first personally in the presence of Jesus. He hadn't met him yet. According to Luke, the Jewish leaders were sent to intercede on his behalf. And that's not really a conflict in Scripture. I mean, it's just a notation of speech that we would have like we use today. And that is, when someone does something on the behalf of someone else, we would often say that that's the person who did it. For instance, in the Old Testament, it tells us that Solomon built the temple. But that doesn't mean that Solomon was out there every day pulling stones into place. And Solomon was not the one who was up there setting up the cedar beams to hold the roof of the temple in place. He commissioned others to do it for him, and so we say Solomon built the temple. And in the same way, this, uh, this centurion, he commissioned his soldiers to build the synagogue for the Jews. So he wasn't out there actually himself every day hammering the nails. So he commissioned others to do that for him. So that's what this centurion did. He approached Jesus, but he did it through others. And that just shows another outstanding characteristic of his faith. Now let's notice some things about this kind of faith that this man had. A faith that amazed Jesus. First of all, he came via the right avenue. And I don't mean that he picked out the right street for the Jews to meet up with Jesus. The right avenue is actually the subject that's under consideration. And that is the right way. The way that you always come to Jesus is by faith. And this man recognized that Jesus was the only one who could help him. His servant was at home, sick of the palsy. And that's another way of saying that he was paralyzed. And with that paralysis, the Bible says that he was grievously tormented with that. That's what we find in verse number 6. So there was no relief for his condition. There was no medical help for it. In those days, the lifespans of people were short. Uh, There was no pathology. And so when a person came down with this type of disease, it was likely that he was going to die. And so disease was often considered to be a death sentence for a person. And so there was no... no, uh, medicine that he could take. There was no surgeon that could come and help him. If Jesus does not come and heal this boy, then surely he is going to die. So how is he going to be healed? Well, the only avenue is by faith. They know nothing of the shots and the pills and the surgery. They weren't going to ask Jesus to stop by the pharmacy on the way to the house and pick up some medicine for him. No, this centurion has a young boy who's dying, and the only way that he can be healed is the belief that Jesus has the power to heal him. And whenever you come into God's realm, the only way that you can ever come to God is by faith. And if you want to put it this way, the only currency in God's realm, the only thing that you have to trade on when it comes to speaking with God is faith. You know, when you go into Safeway and you're going to buy your groceries... You go through the checkout line, and the checker there tells you, that'll be $225, sir. And you say, well, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. But I do have an old dog out in the car. I mean, he's a purebred. I gave $500 for him when he was a pup. And I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll trade you that dog for your groceries. They're not going to do that at Safeway. You either come in with the cash or you have something that represents cash because the only thing that you can trade on in, that, in this economy is you've got to have the money to pay for it. And that's the way it is when it comes to Jesus. You don't come to him with anything that you have to offer. You can't come to him with anything but faith. And so you don't come to Jesus and say to him and say to God, you know, God, I have something that I can offer you. I've done some good things in my life. 
I brought my, brought my tithes and offerings to church. I have attended church. I'm very faithful in doing that. Last week, I cleaned out my closet, and I took all the good clothes or all the old clothes down to Goodwill and gave it to them. That doesn't make any difference to God. You don't come to God trading on what you have to offer him. The only way you can approach him is by faith. Now, God says that his currency is faith, and if you want his goodwill, you come that way. Nothing but total, pure, unmixed faith. The book of Hebrews says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So faith is very important. But even more important than your faith is what you have your faith in, where your faith is applied. You'll often hear people say, Well, just have faith. Have faith. Everything's going to work out all right. And people say, it's my faith. My faith is what sustains me. My faith is what helps get me through. A few weeks ago, I was reading in the paper about Tony Blair and the new book that he's written on his memoirs of being the prime minister of Great Britain. And in that book, he talked a lot about his Christian faith. But what he did is he, he kept mixing that in with faith of all different sorts of religions. But folks, your faith has to be placed correctly. The object of your faith has to be right or your faith means nothing at all. And so when you come into God's realm, the only currency that you can have is faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is no mixture of anything else. And if that faith, if that faith is the only thing that can help you, then that's the way that you have to come. And that's the kind of faith that the centurion had. Nobody but Jesus could heal his servant. And he believed that Jesus could do it because he truly was the Son of God. Well, now we come to his faith in action because secondly, we see he came via the right attitude. And that is, he came in total humility. Now, notice the way that he does this. In verse 7, Jesus heard the need, and so his response was, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Now, Jesus had not demanded anything at all, but just the belief that he's able to do this. He has the power. So he says, I will come and heal him. But then there's this uncommon, uncommon amazing faith of the centurion that begins to show. In verse number 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Now, I have to go to the book of Luke here to get a better understanding of the kind of humility he had. And in Luke chapter 7, verse number 4, the Jewish elders came to Jesus, and they asked Jesus to help this centurion. And they make this remarkable statement. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. And so the Jews came to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, we have a man here, a centurion, He's a good guy. He's worthy. If you're going to do thing, anything for anybody, it ought to be this guy because he is really worthy that you would come and heal his servant. But do we notice that the centurion had a much different assessment of himself? He said, I am not worthy. He said, I am not worthy, Lord, that you should come under my roof. And notice there he says, Lord, and that's the affirmation of the unique position of Christ among anyone else that's in the world. He is Lord. He's God. He's the one who has the power to do this. 
And that faith was uncommon because the humble response of it was, if you are Lord, if you are truly God, then I'm not worthy that you should even step foot in my humble abode. I can't stay in the same house with you because you're God. And that was humility that Christ had not seen among any of the Jews. When he went into the synagogues and he began to preach there, you'll never find an instance where the Jews said, we've got to get out of here. Here here comes Jesus. He's God. We're not worthy to be under the same roof as he. We can't be in the same building at the same time with God. They didn't recognize that. You know, folks, I wonder sometimes about us, and I wonder how much that we really have a sense of who Jesus is. We get the attitude that we deserve the blessings of God. You ever heard someone say, when they're going through tough times, they'll say, well, why is God doing this? How could this happen to me? I don't deserve this. And you know what they're actually saying? I deserve better than this. But do we really deserve anything at all from God? You see, there are many people who think that Jesus is their pal. That what you do is that you just buddy up to Jesus and you throw your arm around him and you chum up to him like you would an old drinking buddy at the bar. Yeah, Jesus, you're my friend. Let's, let's go do things together now. Well, we don't really have a sense that when we come into this place that there ought to be a sense of shame on our heads, that we are not worthy to come into the presence of God. You know, today it's more likely that you'll hear a preacher make demands from God. They don't ask God anymore. They make demands from him. God, you must do this. God, I have the right to ask for this, so I'll make my demands. I have sown my seed faith money. And so now, God, you are obligated to bless me. You have to give me something. You must prosper me. You must give me good health. After all, I'm one of your children, aren't I? And so I deserve this. You ought to give it to me, God. And you'll hear that kind of tripe every time you turn on the TV and listen to Joel Osteen. You'll hear it when you listen to Kenneth Copeland and Joyce Meyer and all of that bunch. They have no idea who Christ is. You do not come into the presence of God and make demands from him. When you come into his presence, you realize that you are totally unworthy to be there. You are not worthy that you should come under the same roof with him. You're not worthy to be within a thousand miles of Jesus Christ. And yet there are people who just flippantly say, I can throw my arm around him, and they don't bow to the majesty of his name. And what does the word of God say? Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And folks, that is something that is lost in many, many churches in America today that we do not understand that Jesus is the glory of the Father, that he is God, and we come into his presence. He deserves our worship. He's far above us. Now, that's the kind of humility that characterized this centurion's faith. It was uncommon. It was a great feature of his faith that amazed Jesus that a Gentile could see that. He recognized who he was, and yet the Jews had so often missed it. And friend, if you didn't come here today with humility, and if you didn't come here bowing before Christ and respecting him and realizing that he is worthy of worship, then you don't have the kind of faith that Jesus will say, I will come and heal him. And Jesus will not come and wash your sins away unless you come to him in humble faith, recognizing you have nothing at all to offer him, And it's only by the grace of God that you're saved. Now, there's a third feature of this amazing faith, and that is that he came via the right authority. 
Now, I, I don't know how you floor Jesus, but if you can do it, this must be the way. In, in Matthew 8, verse 9, he says, For I am a man under authority, having soldiers unto me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and he said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. When Jesus saw it, he marveled. And that word means that he wondered at it. He was amazed by it. This is just an amazing grasp of Jesus and his mission. And the statement, uh, what an amazing thing he says. The centurion says, I am a man under authority. What did he mean by that? Well, here he's speaking of the emperor's authority. When he passed an order to his men, it was under the personal authority of Caesar. And that's what made it stick. He wore the uniform of the legion. He's in Caesar's army, and his authority is what is given to him by Caesar. And so if he gives an order, his men do it. They carry it out. And that's as if Caesar himself was right there giving the order because this man had the authority to do that granted to him by Caesar. You know, the same principle is in our armed forces today. Harry Truman had a sign on his desk that said, The buck stops here. And that meant that everything that's done in government, everything done in the military, was ultimately his decision. He gave the orders. And when the orders were given by those that were under him, it was his command as if he gave it himself. And I suppose that that is a lesson that's totally lost in politics today. You know, everybody, everybody's always looking for a scapegoat, somebody to blame things on. A few months ago, they fired the general who was in charge of the troops in Afghanistan, they said that he was doing a poor job, that he messed things up. But you didn't hear the president say, I failed. I bungled the war. No, he's not going to do that because nobody recognizes authority in that way. Everybody wants to escape the ramifications of authority. But this centurion understood authority. He spoke because Caesar spoke. Well, how does that fit into the text? Well, if you look back again at the end of verse number 7, or chapter 7, rather, it says there that Jesus spoke with authority. And the centurion recognized Christ's authority. And that's tantamount to saying that he understood that Jesus had come to this earth under God's authority. And so that means that he was vested with God's authority to do everything that he did. The centurion acted upon the authority of Caesar, and Christ operated under the authority of the Godhead. And so when he spoke, God was speaking. When he rebuked, that was God rebuking. When he taught, that was God teaching. And when he healed, that was God healing. And so no wonder he said, I'm not worthy. Because he knew if Jesus came into his house, God would be there. And so the centurion recognized spiritual authority. And folks, that is a lesson that we desperately need to learn. The people said he speaks with authority and not as the scribes, but they never really put all of this together and respected that spiritual authority. And I would submit to you today that we don't submit, and they didn't submit because they didn't really understand his spiritual authority. See, when Jesus gave that kingdom manifesto, he fully intended that his authority would cause the people to bow to him in obedience. And so we come down to those ending verses in chapter 7, and it says there, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And why did Jesus say that? Because they called him Lord, but they did not respect his authority. 
And what we have here then is an impossible scenario. You cannot call him Lord without respecting that authority. And so there are many Christians who try to do the same thing. They go their own way. They do their own thing. They ignore Christ's commands. They live like the devil every day of their life. And they don't know what the centurion knew. He knew enough to respect authority. He recognized authority and he obeyed authority. And so when he made this statement, Jesus said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Well, that statement leads us to our final observation today, and that is the judgment of Jesus. The centurion showed uncommon faith, and I haven't had time today to develop this thought that he, he believed that Jesus could heal the servant without even coming to his house. Jesus didn't have to personally be there. And that's just another great statement of his faith because he recognized in that the transcendence of God. God is the one who's above all. He's above everything that goes on. He's a God who's omniscient. Whenever Jesus speaks the word, his will will be done. And that's another great illustration of a verse in Hebrews. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So he didn't have to see Jesus come to his house and physically lay his hands on the boy because he knew that Jesus had the power to transcend time and space. He's God. And so he didn't need to see the sign. No visible evidence needs to be given. And he knows that the miracle will be done. And that's just another aspect of amazing faith. And Jesus had not seen that kind of faith in anyone that he'd spoken to before. And so we really now come down to the reason why that this particular miracle is recorded for us. And there's all these other miracles that Jesus did that we don't have any record of in Scripture. There are certain ones that we do have record of. So why did God give us this particular one? Well, if you'll look in verse number 11, Jesus says, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So why did God give us this story? Well, he gives it to us to show us two things here. And the first one is the inclusion of the Gentiles. He shows us that Gentiles will be saved. Now, the Jews liked this centurion. He was an uncommon Gentile. He wasn't oppressive. And they really liked him because they'd gotten something out of him. And they weren't ready to like Gentiles because they understood what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 when he says you are to love your neighbor and you're to treat them well and you're to love your enemies. These people had prior motivation. And the reason that they liked the centurion because he scratched their back. And so now they're going to scratch his back. They'll go to Jesus and they will intercede for him. And I'm quite sure of this. If this centurion had not reached out first, if he had not shown them kindness then they would not have returned any kindness to him. So what Jesus says next is really a shocking, mind-blowing statement because the scribes never said anything like this. Jesus said, Many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now we notice there that Jesus starts out with Jews. He doesn't say, Many will come from the east and the west and they'll sit down with Titus and Philemon and Cornelius in the kingdom of heaven. 
He doesn't say that. Those were all Gentiles. So he doesn't start with them. He starts with Jews. He starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the ones who are the fathers of the Jewish nation. And she should start there because the Jews are God's chosen people. God called them out particularly. But we also notice in Scripture that Abraham is called the father of the faithful. And God's kingdom has always been about faith. There, there aren't any natural-born citizens in God's kingdom. Every person, Scripture says, is born in trespasses and sin. And that's true whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. And so no one gets into God's kingdom without faith in Jesus Christ. And so this miracle is recorded to show us that Gentiles are accepted into God's kingdom because of faith. And maybe I should add there, because of faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the criteria. And so all others will be excluded. And so Gentiles that are in many different faiths and many different ideas of what faith is and in many different religions, and they don't have the same idea of faith that this scripture speaks of, they will not be in God's kingdom. The Gentiles are only included on the basis of the kind of faith that's displayed by the centurion. So it's Christ, and it's Christ alone. It's a belief that Jehovah God is the true God. It's a belief that he is the one who is to be worshipped. It's belief that we are not worthy to come into his presence. And it's a belief that we can only become worthy because of faith. Faith is that vehicle by which we receive the righteousness of God. That's how it gets transferred to us. So that's the first component of Jesus' shocking statement. Gentiles will be in the kingdom of God as well as the Jews. Now that statement was an overpowering one because as much as these Jews liked this centurion, they were not ready to accept that Gentiles would come into the kingdom of God in the same way that the Jewish people would. But then the next statement that Jesus makes is like hitting them over the head with a 20-pound sledgehammer because he says now, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here he gives us the second component, and that is the exclusion of the Jews. Now throughout the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, God promised there would be a kingdom for the Jews. Now the natural-born descendants of Abraham had rights in that kingdom. They were the first choice. But they could only retain those rights because of faithful obedience to God's commands. Now, hear me out on this because I don't want you to be confused about it. This doesn't mean that by the keeping of commandments that that was a guaranteed way that they could stay in the kingdom of God. And so they worked and they worked and they tried as hard as they could. They tried to be good. They tried to keep the Ten Commandments and so thereby they earned their salvation. That was an impossible thing to do. And the Sermon on the Mount has already showed that. Showed that. They cannot keep the commandments of God. Jesus showed it over and over again, repetitiously. For all the different commands that he went through, he showed them they could not keep his commands perfectly, and that's exactly what God demands. And so on the basis of keeping commands, they were actually excluded from God's kingdom. So the law was given to point out their sinfulness. It wasn't a way to give or given to, to prove that they could actually be sinless. And so the law is the nail in that coffin of self-righteousness, and it proves that the only way a person ever could become righteous is because of faith. And the Jews didn't recognize it. The centurions got it, but the Jews didn't. And so Jesus told them that they had no rights in the kingdom of God. They had forfeited those rights because they did not retain them by faith in the true righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And so even though they said, Abraham is our father, and that's the argument they made with Jesus, Abraham is our father, therefore we're in the kingdom of God. But they were sadly mistaken because Abraham is the father of the godly righteous, not of the self-righteous. And so they would be thrown out. And you notice the terrible way that Jesus puts this. It's a shocking way. He says, They shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there, friends, we have the awful consequences of unbelief. There's where we see the consequences of not having faith in Jesus Christ. And he gives it to us very clearly. It's the everlasting burning fires of hell. He says, Outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's not a metaphor. That's not a figure of speech that he's giving us here. This is the reality of the torments of a literal burning fire. Now, what does all of that mean to you and me? Well, the message is clear that if we're going to be in God's kingdom, there's only one way we can get there. Every last ounce of our being, every last ounce of what we have in us must be directed towards Jesus Christ, who is the object of our faith. Faith in him is the only way that we get into the kingdom of God. And if we don't come that way, then Jesus will not come to us and we will not be healed. And so we come to him humbly and reverently. We come dejected, realizing our unworthiness as sinners. And we come to him with nothing at all in our hands. We come to him with nothing to offer. The centurion didn't say, you know, Jesus, if you'll do this for me, I'll build you a temple. I built the Jews a synagogue, but I'll build you a temple if you'll come and heal my servant. And you know what Jesus would have said? No. He only comes on the basis of faith. It's not what you do for him. It's always what he does for you. And the Jews were excluded when they fought the very same thing. That was works of righteousness. And Jesus says, you're never going to be saved by any good thing that you do. The 13th verse says, And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in that selfsame hour. And so here was the amazing faith. Jesus marveled at this. This faith received its desire. It was placed correctly in the one who has all authority. And God is still telling us the very same thing today. If you're going to come to him, if you're going to be saved from your sins, if you're going to be delivered from hell, then you must come with faith in the one who has all authority. No other way will do. Jesus Christ is the only way that you can come. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the faith that we see here. Lord, I pray that you would open up someone's heart today to help them to understand that we can't be saved by any good thing that we do. There's nothing that we can offer. We come to you as helpless, dejected sinners, and Lord, we are unworthy to be in your presence. And we thank you for the grace of God that overcomes all of that. We thank you that the grace of God pokes through all of our self-righteousness that leaves us humbled and in the dust, realizing that we are nothing. And I pray, Lord, that you would open someone's heart to that realization today that they must come to you in faith, believing that Jesus Christ can save them from all of their sins. So, Lord, we ask for your blessing today. We ask for Christians to be drawn close to you. Help us as we leave this place today that we might think on the things that are said and that we might have that kind of faith that this centurion showed. Lord, make that faith operable in us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.